Abstraction, the podcast from PRISM, Oregon State University's undergrad literary and art magazine. This week's episode, Pickle Soup, is about originality in art. My name is Shoshana Groom. I am a sociology major, a fourth year sociology major here at OSU. And a fun fact about me is I have a rat named Princess Buttercup, who is the absolute cutest little thief you will ever meet. Hi there, my name is Alina Kroll. I'm a fourth year English and creative writing major at OSU. And a fun fact about me is I'm really into making soup and I recently found out about pickle soup. It's this really fun Polish soup that has carrots and pickles and a bunch of other cool stuff in it. Hello, my name is Chase. I'm a third year creative writing major. I'm a transfer from Southern California. Uh, A fun fact about me is that I have a cat named Pickles. So today we are here to talk about originality and plagiarism in art. So this comes up a lot with the advent of AI as well as more frequent discussions in both the world of writing, but also in other art forms about what it means to create original art, take inspiration from art, or just to copy art. And I think that we can really start off this conversation by discussing the idea of ownership of art in the first place, because this is a relatively recent concept. So for an example, in the modern Western world, we tend to think of good art as original, But if it wasn't for the very long history of people copying from and deriving works from pre-existing works, we wouldn't have so many of the amazing stories we have today. For example, in the Bible, there's a man called Nicodemus who takes on a very important role helping to anoint Jesus' body after the crucifixion. He also talks with Jesus at times. He's one of Jesus' acquaintances. There was a gospel called the Gospel of Nicodemus that was supposedly derived from his works. And in the 1100s, a man called Robert de Boron wrote Joseph de Armenothi, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, where he kind of just retold the Gospel of Nicodemus, but just changed a lot of things, including he took the Holy Chalice, which was an artifact um, in the story of Jesus. It was the vessel on which he had the Last Supper. And he just decided to make it more important. And he included a part in the story people tried to bring that um, Holy Chalice back to Britain. Meanwhile, there's another story around the same time called, first of all, the story of the grail, which had some important objects in it, including a non-holy grail, also a non-holy lance and just some other objects. Robert de Boron kind of blended these two things together into the holy grail. Later on, a number of pieces came out that borrowed from that story, including the Lancelot Grail Cycle in the early 1200s. That was later on used to create the Arthurian legend compilations, Le Morte de Arthur in 1470. And people just kept on like taking from that and translating it and changing it until eventually... In the 1900s, a bunch of British men decided to make a comedy of it. And that is how they got Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Monty Python and the Holy Grail only exists because of about a thousand years of people taking from each other's work and building off of it. I feel like in in a sense, it's impossible to write something without being influenced in some way or another. And I feel like there's so many things that go into influencing whether it be from a young age or even something we read or saw recently there's so much that goes into our influences yeah i mean like just imagine all of the amazing works of art we have that we wouldn't have if it wasn't for people taking from pre-existing stories like i mean shrek for example or like i mean veggie tales like the bible isn't copywritten we wouldn't have veggie tales if it wasn't for the public domain and if it wasn't for the long history of people taking from each other's work Yeah, I feel like if it wasn't for those things, we wouldn't have anything to base off of. I mean, we wouldn't have any material whatsoever. And this wasn't like a really controversial opinion until just about the last 300 years. 
The idea of copyright only came into existence in the early 1700s, and this emerged in England and in Scotland. Before that, the idea of copyright just didn't exist. They were folk tales, they were oral tales, um, and they belonged to the people. They belonged to the culture, and the idea of public ownership of them didn't really exist. Even when the idea of copyright did first begin to emerge, copyright only protected works for, I believe, about 28 years in the United States. This was bit-by-bit bit increased from 28 years to, I believe, 42 years, 56 years in the U.S., until eventually the Copyright Term Extension Act of 1998 happened, which was an act that was, fun fact, sponsored by Cher's first husband, Sonny Bono. He was a congressman after being Cher's husband. And he sponsored this act that was called the Mickey Mouse Protection Act because it extended the public domain in the U.S., which was already quite large by that point, by another 20 years to keep Steamboat Willie, which includes Mickey Mouse, from entering the public domain. So from 1999 to 2019, virtually no American works entered the public domain because of Disney just trying to hold on to Mickey Mouse for as long as possible. For 20 years, American artists could not borrow from 20 more years of pre-existing art the way that artists had for millennium. Which is funny because Disney used so much of the public domain in the creation of their art. I mean, Cinderella and Sweet and the Seven Dwarves and The Hunchback of Notre Dame, all of this was taken from the public domain. Although we were successful, eventually in 2019, works did begin entering the public domain again, and we finally got Steamboat Willie just earlier in this year, in January, on January 1st, 2024. Yeah, so I guess the concept of ownership of art is a modern invention. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. And it did incentivize the creation of art in a way that people necessarily hadn't seen before because suddenly you could monetize it. But it came at the expense of the cultural heritage of art and our ability to create something that belongs to more than ourselves and belongs to the culture at large. Now, of course, it'd be easy to say, well, we should all just come together, share our art, not take public ownership of any of it. It's definitely a problem in the modern day when we have such a strong hustle culture, which sees a lot of people trying to make easy money wherever they can. And we've definitely seen that small artists and small business owners have been the victims of a lot of breaches of their creativity by larger brands, larger influencers, etc. So something I've seen a lot is fast fashion brands ripping off independent designers. And this is an issue for both major and minor designers. So something like a huge brand of H&M taking a small designer's works and basically producing the exact same thing for a significantly lower price and not giving credit to the original designer, obviously, and basically taking away from their ability to profit. Um, we also see the opposite issue where there is a designer that's very expensive who creates something, a piece of clothing that's maybe a couple hundred dollars, and then stores like H&M take that and they make it affordable for other people. And with that latter example, I think that it's more ethically okay. I'm personally fine with not paying $100 for a dress and going to H&M for something cheaper, even if it is lower quality, but I don't love how fast fashion frequently rips off small businesses. I just don't think it's fair to them and it can do a lot of damage to their business. And that also leads into the, even the bigger question of the devaluation of art, because obviously when you have these big brands ripping off smaller designers and producing really poor quality garments that were probably made in worse ethical conditions, that sets a lower standard for the consumer how much we're supposed to pay for a piece of art, a garment. And I think we can get used to lower prices. We can get used to benefiting from this fast fashion, from this exploitation of the small business owners and the artists and whatnot. And so when small business owners do try to charge fair prices, the we as the consumers feel like they're charging us too much. In the same way that 
you know, if you get really used to AI-generated short stories, AI-generated art, you might not value the amount of time and effort that goes into creating a real piece of art, not real, but an original piece of art. Although that's something we'll discuss later in the episode. I definitely agree with that. And I think that a lot of times when consumers are looking at pieces, whether it's art or clothing or a piece of writing, they don't think about what goes into producing it. And they just see, oh, this is either $20 or $50. And a lot of the backstory is lost there, especially with the mass production of fast fashion that has occurred in the past decades. And that also ties into similar industries like the film industry. Last year, The Last of Us was the most pirated show on television. And it kind of goes to show how, at the end of the day, it is something where people look at the price of something to quantify whether or not they want to consume it. And it's just, it's already so difficult to make money from your art. And it's definitely not just fashion either. Like, I think a lot about... The, all the controversies on TikTok and on Fortnite to a certain degree about dance moves. Fortnite is actually getting sued by some people that originated some dance moves that Fortnite is using. And of course, you've seen controversies on TikTok about large influencers using the dances of smaller creators without giving credit, which just makes you wonder, like, who quote unquote owns a dance? Like, I do a lot of country line dance, and a lot of that is pre-scripted, pre-choreographed. And oftentimes we know who the choreographer is, although sometimes we don't. But even though the dance may have originated that person, it belongs to the culture. I mean, I can still, I do teach line dance and I can teach a dance that's choreographed by somebody else. Me and people I'm teaching can still enjoy it. The dance doesn't belong to that person anymore. It belongs to the wider culture, but that doesn't make you any money. And there is a lot of money that can be made or lost in the world of social media and dance. So there's this really interesting article on Vox by Rebecca Jennings. And just raised the question of like, what does dance ownership even look like when there is so much money to be made from it? I mean, the idea of owning a dance move is kind of ludicrous for me from my line dance and ballroom dance background. But at the same time, I mean, I've seen plenty of examples on TikTok or whatnot of small creators creating a dance move and then some major influencer using their dance and getting millions of views and they get sponsorships. And of course, that's unfair to the small creator. I've seen something similar happen with Reddit posts. Right now, Reddit posts are really, really popular on sites like YouTube and TikTok where creators will go onto Reddit, find a popular post or or an unpopular one that they just think is interesting. They'll take screenshots of the post and the comments and they'll post that on a different app. And the posts on a different app, whether it's YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, whatever, they can get a ton of views, sometimes even tens of thousands, whereas the original post only has a couple hundred. And although Reddit isn't necessarily a platform that people make money off of, I still think it's rather unfair to the creator, especially because some of those posts are about sensitive topics like people going through family struggles or some sort of conflict in their life. And they might not have given their consent to have that information publicized across such a wide web. And when these accounts that do repost these things, it seems that they have a much more substantial following. And that's the reason that they can have the opportunity to make money off of something which in the first place didn't have the objective of making money. But now that it's being reposted, it seems like that is where the, the thing is at. It's a little cryptic that this is what works. I don't think that it's a coincidence that we see these pages getting so popular. A page that consistently posts interesting content is going to get a lot more attention than a page that only sometimes posts interesting content. And as a real person, you aren't always going to be interesting or funny. But as someone that's scourging the internet, just looking for the best of things to repost, you're going to be able to find a lot more good content, even if it's not original. It's by design. 
I noticed that so often these conversations, it seems like the conversation revolves around credit, like giving credit where that's due. And I mean, obviously giving credit is a great first step, but like how many times have you been on Instagram or TikTok or whatever, and you've seen something that was reposted or a screenshot or whatnot, and you've actually taken the time to go to the original page? Like I never do that. I see like some cute cat video or whatever. That's most of my Instagram feed is just cats um, or bunnies. I see some cute bunny video. I'm not going to find the original owner. I'm just going to enjoy the bunny video and move on. Yeah, and that kind of brings up the question of how do people ethically consume material and can we ethically consume material that has been posted from other accounts without perhaps their permission? Because even if you watch a YouTube video that has some sort of Reddit story on it and you don't like it, you're still giving it attention and increasing their chances of being seen by other people just by viewing the video. There's a lot of times when I feel like we're in kind of a, a guinea pig state with these things, with the internet and with the way we consume media now. I mean, so much has changed so substantially over the past 10, 20 years of how we consume this media that so many more questions have come to light. Definitely. It seems like the laws can't catch up. I mean, I feel like I'm getting ahead of myself here because they're planning to talk about AI later in the episode. But it's true that with this new technology, with social media, with AI, the laws just haven't caught up yet. And I think it's creating kind of a, a no man's land or a wild west of technology and the concept of originality where we suddenly have the ability to profit off of tools that haven't really been regulated yet. And we don't necessarily have a moral framework for it yet either. Maybe it is an inevitability that a couple examples will kind of shock us into realizing these things and the changes that need to be made. And perhaps they already are starting to shock us in a way with the changes that we've been seeing. I remember that I think it was a couple of years ago, there was this big scandal in the Twitch community, the gamer community, because there was a really popular male streamer that had been watching deep fakes, like porno pornographic deep fakes of other female Twitch streamers when it was eventually revealed because he was really sloppy and I think he shared a screen with the tab open, there was this big reckoning where he was claiming that he hadn't realized it was bad, hadn't given it ethical thought. They eventually found the person that was behind deep fakes and that person also claimed that they just hadn't thought it through, hadn't considered ethical applications, whatnot. And I mean, it's entirely possible they're just lying. That happens all the time. But it's also true that the ethics of deep fakes, the ethics of AI, these aren't necessarily set in stone yet the way that a lot of other ethic buildings are. I mean, don't consume deepfake pornography. That's just kind of an obvious answer. So recently, citizens of New Hampshire received phone calls from an AI version of Biden, urging them not to vote in the presidential primary. It was revealed that actually the, the phone calls came out of a business from Texas who has been doing this kind of thing for a long time with robocalls. And I guess with the development of AI it's only gotten easier to do this. But I also think it's important to talk about how like when it comes to deep fakes and AI, so much of it is used for sexual material, which can include, you know, non-consensual deep fake pornography and can include erotic material, which definitely raises a question. And this does tie back into the question of art and AI, which is consent. Like if you post something online, whether it's a public Instagram photo, a TikTok, when most people, you have your voice, a piece of art, whatever, are you giving consent to, for that to be used to create anything? Can someone, you know, if you publish a short story, is it okay for an AI algorithm to take that story along with a million other stories and use that to produce content that you might not like or agree with, that somebody else might submit to a contest and hopefully not win, but potentially win? Just like if you submit a selfie, if you should submit a clip of your voice, are you okay with those images and those clips being used for whatever people want to use them for? 
I think it's true that a lot of this is new to us. And unlike a lot of old school plagiarism, we just we don't have rules already in society to fall back on. And I feel like that segues really well into the discussion of AI and art. Uh, when is it okay to use AI for art? And regardless of whether or not we like it, how do we handle the influx of AI submissions that we as a literary journal and a literary community are going to have to deal with? I recently read a really interesting article from a website called The Verge, and it was talking about the influx of AI submissions in literary journals. This has been a really big issue lately, but luckily so far, AI submissions are easily distinguishable from human-written works. The article I read stated that AI submissions typically use similar titles, character names, cliche storylines, sketchy cover letters, and generally they're just very, very obviously fake. Some of the submissions even had hi and then name, as in the actual word name instead of the supposed writer's name. And I just want to be clear, this is not something that AI is submitting. This is something that a human has gone onto a platform for and told it to write a story for me, write a cover letter for me, and then they have manually uploaded that to a literary journal. But even so, people are basically spamming literary journals with these AI submissions, and it's gotten so bad that some have even had to temporarily shut down because they could not handle the amount they were receiving. And this is a really big issue for smaller literary journals because they typically use sites like Submittable, which is a website that manages literary submissions for both literary journals and the people who submit to them. And literary journals who are on the site have to pay a fee to be on there. And they can pay either a low amount and accept a low amount of submissions every month, or they can pay a higher amount and increase their submissions. And so if they're being flooded with all these fake AI-generated submissions, they're not receiving the amount of actual human-written submissions that they need. This means that they're going to have fewer submissions to choose from, and it's also hurting writers who actually want to submit, but the AI submissions have overwhelmed the system and they're no longer able to because they have reached that cap. And a really big difficulty is that a lot of times it's not just as easy as pressing a button and figuring out whether or not something is AI. Right now, so many of the websites, the programs that can detect whether or not a piece is written by AI just simply aren't accurate. There's so many examples of human written works going into these detectors and still being flagged as AI. And I think perhaps a reason for that is AI is based off of human works. Again, we're kind of in a dark age here. It's, it's difficult to figure out what is AI and what isn't. So much is still left up to the human, the human brain, I suppose. Another problem is that it's just changing so quickly. I mean, the article from The Verge, super interesting, also a year old. And so much has changed just in those 12-ish months. And the problem is kind of an arms race, I think, between people that are producing AI works and people trying to catch them. And things are shifting so quickly. I guess kind of my prediction, my crackpot prediction for the future is that maybe we use fire to fight fire. We use <laughs> AI to, to detect AI. And it's... It's one of those things where it's like, you know, the tools that are that are being made now are just that tools. And we're in a time where the introduction of that has left us without a mitigation for its negative effects, perhaps. Especially since, if I remember correctly, some of the sites that offer AI detection services also produce AI. Like they're, they're playing both sides of the war. <laughs> That's interesting. I didn't know that. And I think it's going to only get more difficult to detect AI submissions in the future because I know that in the past few years with 
AI-generated images becoming more popular on the internet, they have gone from being really creepy, really uncanny valley where people typically had like 10 fingers, a super long torso, and now we're not seeing that as much. Shoshana recently showed me an Instagram account of a woman who's not actually a woman. She's a fully AI-generated thing that a company posts online to make money off of her. So I think that will start happening with literature as well. Right now, if you go to an AI site and ask it to write you a story, they're ridiculously bad. It's <laughs> terrible. They're so generic. They're so very surface level. And because they're pulling from such a wide range of human submissions, they become very generic. They typically don't have a message other than a kind of placated happiness, like a very forced happiness where they try to end the story with the message that everything is perfect, everything good and happy, and there's absolutely no deeper message. And if you guys want to look up that quote-unquote model that Alina just mentioned, that is fit underline Aitana, A-I-T-A-N-A. It's a Instagram model with 281,000 followers. It also has a, it's not an OnlyFans, but it's like a similar OnlyFans. I think it's dystopian and creepy as heck. What you guys think is up to you. Anyway, so I asked ChatGPT to write me a 200-word feminist short story. I won't read the whole thing, but it begins with, In the heart of a bustling city, amidst the cacophony of voices and a ceaseless rhythm of life, there lived a woman named Maya. She walked with purpose, her strides echoing the determination that burned in her soul. Maya was not one to conform to expectations society placed upon her. She refused to be bound by the shackles of tradition or the limitations imposed by a patriarchal world. One day, as Maya wandered through the crowded streets, she stumbled upon a group of women gathered in protest. They raised their voices in unison, demanding equality and justice for all. Literally, it says equality and justice for all. Okay. <laughs> Inspired by their courage, Maya joined their ranks, her voice merging with theirs in a chorus of defiance. And it describes how they go on a march. This is all told in summary, by the way. For Maya and her sisters, the true liberation can only be achieved through solidarity and strength. It ends with, as the sunset on the horizon casting a warm glow upon the city streets, Maya knew that their fight was far from over, but she also knew that as long as they stood together, they would never be defeated. That is really funny because last night as we were researching this, Shoshana asked an AI generator to create a similar story, and it ended with pretty much the exact same sentence about the sun setting on the horizon and <laughs> the lady knowing there was more work to be done. And I think the issue with AI-generated literature right now is that it is so generic. Shoshana pointed out that that scene was told entirely in summary. It was not specific. There's nothing to distinguish Maya from anybody else and just kind of creates a really boring work. And another interesting thing is how a lot of AI-generated work that we have seen starts with the exact same word in <laughs> in the summer, in the fall, or in this example, in the... I forgot what it was. But <laughs> the thing is, is that we see this so often and even across different AI-generated works. When I was prepping for this episode, I asked AI to write the first 200 words of a novel in the style of Octavia Butler, and it literally starts with in the dimly lit alleys. And it ends with, and as she continued on her journey, she knew that whatever lay ahead, she would face it with the same unwavering resolve that carried her through the darkest of nights. It's so cheesy, and it's saying so much without saying a thing. Part of me wonders whether or not the reason for that is because of the sources it's gathering. Is all the stories that it's compiling, do so many begin with that same phrase that it's doing that? Or is that simply because of the algorithm or how it works? Is that something that'll change in the future? Raising the question of where it gets its sources, I also wonder, I mean, I don't mean to be rude, but there's also a lot of really awful art on the internet. 
And so I do wonder, like, is AI sourcing from the nicer stuff or is it sourcing from everything? Because that would seriously impact what we get when we put something in the chat GPT. Yeah, I guess AI doesn't really have a sense for what we deem as, as good or bad. So that's mm -hmm. the trade-off, I suppose, that AI picks up both good and bad writing, objectively. I mean, wasn't that one of the problems with, oh my gosh, what was it called back in 2016, that AI Twitter account, like Tay tweets or something? There was they, they, someone, I think it was Microsoft, tried to create like a little AI model that was supposed to figure out like who it was by discussing, by, by talking to people on the internet and by like learning from Twitter how to be a human. And it went about as well as you would expect. It was just tweeting like blatantly anti-Semitic and racist stuff within like 24 hours because it's learning from the internet and the internet's not perfect. Big surprise. So in literary classes and literary circles, there's a concept called scene versus summary. Basically what it is is summary is when a writer is telling you what's happening either from present tense, past tense, even future tense in some cases. But also there is scene. And scene is a more fuller picture, if you will. It shows dialogue, reactions from characters. It puts you in, in the scene. So what we're seeing with a lot of these AI submissions is, like Shoshana mentioned, is they're summarized. So all these things are told from an exterior lens, and that's kind of what plays into them not being so so quality, if you will. And perhaps that is because AI doesn't have the capacity to write scenes, at least not yet. Yeah, I remember last night we tried to make it write some dialogue, and it was really funny dialogue, and it did make dialogue, but it was also some of the most cliche, I mean, it's cute, but it was really cliche. I mean, this is going to sound a little hoity-toity, but there's no soul behind it. I think the problem is that humans write for a variety of reasons, a variety of motivations. We want to express ourselves, we want to expand other people's minds, we want to whatever. AI is just trying to please the person who gave it a prompt. It's just trying to satisfy them. It doesn't really know who that person is. So it's just trying to give a generic satisfactory answer. It's like the difference between like research that's done for the sake of research and research that's done to get a good grade on a school paper. When your only goal is just to satisfy some faceless person, you aren't going to get interesting and authentic work the way you are when you have the really messy and interesting motivations of real human beings. I mean, that whole spiel I went on about the Monty Python Holy Grail, I had a lot of fun researching that. And I was motivated by the fact that it was 12.30 a.m. and I was having a really good time. You aren't going to get that from AI. And something we were discussing earlier is that it seems like AI is incapable of forming an argument like you were talking about with the dialogue. There really is no subtext behind what it writes most of the time. And I think perhaps the reason for that is because of all the sources it draws on. When you have so many different things that you are mashing together and when you spit something out, it's kind of impossible to form a cohesive argument or to have some nuance to your narrative in a way that seems human. Yeah, and with that, I mean, you also have the product of problem of, I mean, not only does AI not care about being original, it doesn't care about the truth, it's trying to please you. I asked AI to describe Kathy LeBlanc's views on abortion, and it gave me a whole little thing about her views. She doesn't exist as far as I know, I just made that name up. But, like, I have a whole mini-essay now on Kathy LeBlanc's views on abortion. The fact that that person, as far as I know, doesn't exist, doesn't matter to AI. What matters is that it gave me the answer it thinks I want. 
And so with these two contradictory ideas, you know, the idea that human creativity is part of a larger culture, doesn't just does not just belong to one individual, but also the idea that people deserve recognition for what they make and that human creativity and originality is valuable, I think that raises the question of for authors, where do you draw the line between inspiration and plagiarism? I've been thinking about this a lot lately because some of my professors give us a task of write a short story or write a poem and base it off of someone else's work, whether that's basing it off of the style, the dialogue, or even including some of the same exact lines. And one of my professors mentioned that it's generally accepted to have a line or maybe even a couple of lines in a poem as long as you put credit for that in either your title or right before the poem comes. And I think that makes sense, but I don't exactly know if it's okay to publish that kind of material if you're pulling directly from someone else's. Well, maybe you're not plagiarizing it. You still are using major elements from a different person's work. And this also goes into different industries. In the music industry, for example, one one well-known example particularly was when Vanilla Ice made Ice Ice Baby. He sampled a huge part of Queen and David Bowie's Under Pressure, you know, the main the main chorus, I think it is. At the end of the day, Bowie and Queen got into a lawsuit against Vanilla Ice, and they ended up getting songwriting credit for the song, as well as a sum of $4 million U.S. dollars. And this definitely ties back into the world of writing as well, where you have a lot of stories that are based off of folklore, they're based off of the Bible, they're based off of what have you. I don't think I can think of any work of writing that has not been at least somewhat influenced by pre-existing material. I mean, even just things like Harry Potter, which was based on the Bible, Lord of the Rings. I didn't realize this, but Tolkien did not invent Middle Earth. I remember I was reading a fairy tale from like the 1800s and they mentioned Middle Earth and I was so thrown out of whack because I was like, why are they mentioning a Tolkien concept in this like 1800s fairy tale? No, the concept of Middle Earth has existed for like a thousand years. It's quite old. And this is fine and normal. You can also get to a point where even if something is not technically plagiarism, even if it's still falling under the kind of umbrella of like borrowing from folklore, borrowing from whatnot, where it's still not interesting or original from a writer's point of view. I work a lot with fairy tales in my own writing, and it can be really tempting when you find a really cool, interesting fairy tale to just kind of rewrite the fairy tale and just deal with the concepts it already raises, deal with the lessons it imparts, etc. And you can kind of get away with this because most people won't be familiar with the fairy tale. But at the end of the day, you aren't adding anything original. Like, people could just read the fairy tale and get everything you're doing, which is why as a writer who writes a lot of things based on fairy tales, I have to push myself to figure out, okay, I have this fairy tale. What do I do with it that is new original? Do I write something that contradicts parts of it or gets into dialogue with it that points out some of its problems and deals with them? Do I apply it to a new situation? Do I just take the ideas and then run with them and do something completely different? There's a lot of options available to you, but you do have to do your own thinking. You do need to, and it's hard, and sometimes it would be a lot easier to just not do your own thinking, um, but you do need to figure out, like, what insight can I add that would actually contribute something to the world of literature. And that also kind of raises the question of how much is original? I mean, is Dante's Inferno a, is it a Bible fanfic? Like, you could make that argument. You do hear it a lot that there are only so many stories that can be told. There's so many narratives that we tell over and over and over again, perhaps, and just with a little bit of difference in the characters mm-hmm. and the setting. And I think that that's, like, all good and normal to a certain degree. But you can also get to a point, Disney, where you're just misusing that for profit. Like, how many more live-action adaptions do we need of Disney stories? We've had enough. (laughs) 
I don't want any more. Yeah, too many. I think that as a writer, it can be pretty difficult to write something that is based off of someone else and not feel like it's original because even if it's mostly based on a different piece, you typically have the feeling that, oh, I wrote this, this is mine, I included some new concepts, I included a new character, a new setting, some differences in style, whatever, so this is mine. And I don't think that's always true. I think for me, the difference lies in how much originality you include and how much of the original source you include. So if you're basing the majority of your piece on techniques that a different person used, I don't think that's okay to call it completely original. And in that case, I would probably include something about it being inspired by or based on some other author. If it's only a few aspects, and if they're relatively minor aspects that don't overwhelm your whole story, I don't think it's necessary to include that sort of epigraph in that case. And I also think a large part of it has to do with not just how much technical changes are you making, but when it comes to the takeaways, to the emotions, to the messages, etc., to the ideas you are creating, how much of a change is there? Like, I remember when my mom was like 10, she got published in this book of like children's art and short stories, which so funny, by the way, if you've ever had a chance to read children's art and short stories, I highly recommend it. And there was this poem that was, I think it was written, quote, with apologies to so-and-so, I can't remember. And I realized that this poem was almost word for word another poem. And this was written by a 13-year-old. It was almost word for word a poem written by an adult. And the original poem was about eating plums. And this 13-year-old changed the word plums to hamsters. And they changed a few other small things. And they gave credit as, you know, with apologies to the author. But that was something where I was like, okay, I don't know what's going on in your life. I have some questions for your parents. But that is making a genuine change to the story. It is sending a different, a very different message. It has a different tone, has a different everything. I would consider that very artistic and interesting, very terrifying. I don't want to be in a dark alley with that kid. But interesting. Whereas if they had changed, you know, plumps to some other form of fruit, it wouldn't have been plagiarism as long as they gave credit. But it, it still, they still wouldn't have been adding anything. As an artist and someone that does have quite a lot of work on the internet, I really don't like the idea of people taking my work and using it to create, I mean, anything really without my knowledge or consent, but especially not short stories that I might, or other pieces of art, that directly challenge the livelihood of other authors. Yeah, it's kind of an existential issue in a way. It's something that I think about often, and I think all of us think about often, is the time that we're spending doing the things we're doing. Is it in vain because of what's going on right now? I don't know. I don't, I hope not. All right, well, thank you all so much for listening. This has been Shoshana, Alina, and Chase. We'll see you next time. <laughs> That's so awkward. <laughs> <laughs> this show was made by Volunteers for PRISM. If you or someone you know is interested in PRISM or in volunteering for PRISM, you can visit PRISM's website at prism.orangemedianetwork.com. That's P-R-I-S-M dot orangemedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>